As we begin this whole Get Drenched series together, we're going to begin at the beginning, in the beginning of the New Testament. So turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 through 16. If you look at your scriptures there, you're going to see this is a very famous passage that we're going to be studying this morning. It's the beginning of what is called the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus' first big teaching after the Spirit anointed him towards ministry. He had done some um, other teaching with his disciples and others, but this is where the really things start to get some some, uh, energy and some Um, Yeah, just things are moving forward here. And so he puts together these chapters of the Sermon on the Mount, and he begins it with a very famous passage, which we will explore this morning as well as a little bit more of it, and um, see what God has for us as we begin to study his, his, the gospel, the, uh, the book of Matthew, but also the book of the New Testament, where God shows us the hope that he gives us in Jesus Christ. As we do that, let's pray together that God meets us in his word. Father, we ask that you um, give us a hunger this morning, as you say here, a hunger after righteousness, that we long to know your words. We long to know your heart. We long to know how it is that you want us to be as your disciples. We, we pray, Father, that that longing then motivates us to lives of thankfulness and gratitude. That as we learn more about you in your word, that we understand just how much you love us even more. That we understand the grace that gives us hope. That we understand the purpose that we've been given. That we understand the gifts that we have equipped to show the world who you are. We pray, Father, that you equip us to that end through your word today. Lord, may I disappear. May these words not be mine, but yours and yours alone to us. And Lord, in your word to us, we might be equipped to go from this place to see your kingdom grow. Lord, we pray these things all in the name of Jesus. We said together, amen. I want a one word answer and you can just yell it out. I'll try to pick them out. My question is this, what one word describes what motivates you to follow Jesus? What? Hope? I heard hope. Love? Another word. What's that? Promises. Gratitude. Thankfulness. Salvation. Okay, the future, eternity. Anything else? Joy. What's that? Faith. Lots of good words that motivate us. Is anyone ever motivated out of fear? I am. I'm terrified sometimes of God's judgment for me. There are times when I look back on my life and I'm motivated to do better because of fear. Colton, thank you for being honest. I know that especially when I was younger and I didn't fully understand who God was. Fear was a motivation. We're all motivated by different things to follow Jesus Now, we should be able to narrow those things into some real beautiful basic things. Things like promises, uh, salvation, you know, joy, love, grace. We should be able to motivate it down to a top list. But each of those things has different power in our lives. 
I want to share with you in this passage this morning that I think God actually gives us one more motivation that should be at the top of that list that I didn't hear this morning and that we could put on our list and ask God to motivate us towards that. Let's dig into the word together and see what Christ has to say to us because this is, in fact, Christ's word to us. This is his sermon. He's the one speaking, all right? Now, when Jesus saw the crowds, the beginning of Matthew 5, he went up on a mountainside and he sat down. His disciples, they came to him and he began to teach them. And he said these words, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. And blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Now we're going to stop there. So, first of all, context. Jesus's ministry is beginning. We're at the beginning of the book of Matthew, and we see in the passages just before that what's happening. Jesus is calling his different disciples. He's beginning to uh, teach. He's beginning to gather the crowds. And we can assume that there are crowds who follow him every day. What we know from this text, however, is that he's not in a crowded place. Look back at the beginning. It says, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His who? Disciples came to him. So as much as, and if you've seen sort of movie versions of the Sermon on the Mount, um, there's different versions out there that will go over the life of Christ and they'll picture this sermon. Often they picture this sermon on a mount with, with hundreds of people surrounding Jesus. Although there may have been some hangers on, we know for sure that he's speaking to the disciples. We don't know that he's speaking to a large crowd. Why is that important? Here's why it's important. Because this small group of disciples, thus far he doesn't have his full complement of 12, but he certainly has a group around him. This group of disciples are going to ultimately be the ones who launch the church. And Jesus, from the beginning of his ministry, is trying to implant in them the most important things. This is what following me is all about. And if you'll notice verses 1 through 8, that each of those beatitudes is about inward stuff. It's about heart stuff. Read them again. Blessed are the poor in spirit. That's an inward activity, being in poverty in our hearts, whether it be mourning or a sense of loss or fear or doubt. Okay? So poor in spirit is an inward thing. Mourning. Mourning is inward. Yes, it can be outward, but most predominantly is mourning. And we certainly think of those families this morning, the Vela family, the Nidham family, who's in mourning. And certainly we know their hearts are troubled. Meekness. 
Meekness is an eternal activity of saying that I will submit. I will submit to God. I will put others before myself. I will not seek to lord. The opposite of meekness is lordship. I will not seek to impart my own will upon another. That's an inward activity. Now, this one is important for us this morning. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. I asked the question earlier, what motivates you? How many of you are motivated primarily by righteousness? Anyone? We're motivated instead more by love and salvation. But here we hear in God's word that hungering and thirsting after righteousness is an important component of our walking with God. Why is that? Why would that be? Well, I've said to you before that God hates sin, right? Yes? Nod your head, shake your head, no, okay? God hates sin, right? And if God hates sin, then those who sin, he hates the sin within them. That's actually the whole reason for the atonement. Because we know if we trust in the grace of Jesus Christ and the love of Jesus Christ, instead of standing on our own merits with our own sin, we are covered with the what righteousness of Jesus Christ. And we are then without sin. And if we're without sin, can we have a relationship with God? Yes. Nod your head. Yes. All right. Okay. I understand we're going into complicated theology here, but this is important. All right. Righteousness before God gives us relationship with God. It gives us the opportunity to be connected with him. So when we hear in this passage that those who are blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, what God is saying there to us through his servant Jesus, what Christ is saying to us is, I want to be with you. And one of the ways that I will be with you is through your righteousness. Now, not fully and completely on your own because you can't do that. I keep on messing it up. I keep on hurting my relationship with God through my sin because I am imperfect. But as I pursue more deeply his righteousness, I am saying to God, I want to be with you. So for us to live into that motivation, in fact, friends, that's our whole purpose of the next 90 days. It is to equip all of us in our community with a deeper sense of God's righteousness in Jesus Christ that he gives us in his word. And for us to dig deep, for us to be drenched in God's word, that his righteousness might flow through us, in us, cleanse us, change us, transform us. So being motivated by righteousness, saying, I want to be deeper in relationship with God, so I want to do what it is that he says for us to do, is a good motivation. And friends, that's one of our challenges this morning. Be motivated by righteousness because it more deeply communes you with Christ. Let's continue. Verse 9 says there, blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. 
Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. It says this, (laughs) rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Now, really reading that text, friends, and I hope you keep it in front of you, you see it there. How many of you still want to be Christians? Right? Because if you want to be a Christian, guess what? The best, or one of the best parts about being a, a Christian is in the eyes of the world for you and I to be punching bags. You still want to go? Still want to live into this? And that, friends, is a promise. And it's also not only a promise, but in God's word. It's an encouragement. How many of you want blessing in your life? Then go out and stick your face in the world's way. Go out and be ready to stand. Go out and be willing to be persecuted. Because then you will certainly, as promised here, Receive blessing. Now, I know there are some of you who are saying, okay, all right, give me my boxing gloves. I'm ready to go out there. And you're going to go find the person down the street who's, you're going to ask him the question, you know, do you know Jesus? They're going to say, no, I don't believe in Jesus. I think Christians are heretics or Christians are goofballs. And you're going to go, bam, all right, I've stood. That's absolutely not what we're talking about here. Because what we're talking about here is also in the context of living in relationship with the world around us, standing strong, but be willing to be love. I'm going to tell you one of the things that angers me the most. One thing that angers me the most are Christians in whatever context, social media, um, you know, public, whatever, who get in the face of other people using Jesus as a boxing glove to punch people in the face and say, you're wrong, Jesus is right. You're wrong, the kingdom of God is better than the kingdom of this world. You're wrong, you're stupid, you're foolish. That's horrible. Because that's not love, is it? I was reminded of that this, uh, actually a week and a half ago. As I said earlier, Cameron and I made the big trip across country for her to go to Calvin. And if any of you, if you know my daughter, my daughter is a person of some some very strong beliefs about a lot of things. And especially um, just the two of us, she is not at all hesitant in sharing those beliefs. We were driving past a truck that had something racist on it. It had something that certainly was a symbol and some thoughts of racism. And my daughter, being the sensitive daughter that she is, and I'm very proud of her, says, that's racist. That's horrible. That guy's a jerk. And I said, I agree with you that that is racist, that that is horrible, and that is not a message that you agree with, nor should we ever stand with someone who stands for that thing. But I did say to her, and I'm very conscious of this because she's going into a college context where some of those discussions are going to happen fairly regularly. I said, be cautious, Cameron. Because when you stick your nose in someone's face and say something like, you're racist. 
What's the next part of the conversation? What happens next? What happens after you to say to somebody, Mike, you're a jerk. How's Mike going to respond to that? Because I'm saying something about Mike's identity. I'm saying that Mike is something. I'm saying that that person in the truck is something. The person in the truck is a racist. Mike is a jerk. Right? You're not. Mike's a really great guy, by the way. Really great guy. What if I said this instead? What you have on your truck is racist. Can we talk about that? Mike, what you did there hurt me. Can we talk about that? Instead of me talking about someone's identity and making claims that they are a fool, you're an idiot, you're stupid, you're whatever, whatever sort of derogatory term that we want to use about someone's identity, we instead say what it is that they've done is the thing that we have a problem with. Friends, this is important. Think about your kids. Think about the kids that you know. Think about your nieces and your nephews. Think about other people in your life who are young and small. If I were to say to my son, you're stupid, how long is that going to stay with him? Probably forever. But if I say, Troy, what you did there wasn't the wisest thing, that's a little different. And friends, if we want to be, as the scriptures say, peacemakers, right? We are called to be peacemakers. Then leaving doors open to continued conversation with people uh, through instead of criticizing an identity, we instead critique an action, a behavior, a choice that they've made. I know when Kristen and I have an argument, there's certain ways to say things that are constructive. And unfortunately, I've discovered a lot of ways to say things that are destructive. And most often, those destructive ways has everything to do with me critiquing her identity. Instead, for me to say, what you did hurt me. What you said was foolish. What happened there, I didn't like. And friends, if we are going to be peacemakers in this world, and does anyone agree that maybe we could use a little bit more peace? Like seriously? I want you, when you do whatever it is that you do today, I want you to listen for some of that stuff. If you're on social media, listen for identity statements as opposed to behavior statements. Listen in your own life. Listen in your spouse's life. And by the way, if your spouse says to you or someone says to you something like an identity statement that is negative, then please don't use me as your fallback. Pastor Scott said, because then I'm in trouble. All right? If we are going to be peacemakers, if my daughter is going to be a peacemaker on Calvin's campus, if I'm going to be a peacemaker in Redlands, if you're going to be a peacemaker in your neighborhood, in your workplace, in your schools, in your family, then keep doors open by intentionally making statements of critique, truth and love about behavior, not identity. Identity statements can close doors. Behavior statements can keep them open. Let's continue. 
Verse 13 says this. You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. See, friends, this is where I think our conversation about identity statements or behavior statements comes out in some pretty big ways. We live into a world that does things very particularly. Politically, there's a lot of identity statements. In, in social media, there's a lot of identity statements. And what does God call us to do? He calls us to be in this world, but not of it. So if everyone else is doing that, then what do we do? Something different. Something different is what makes us peacemakers. It makes us people of love. That's this whole idea of salt that we have here. Salt is a distinctive thing. You know what it does? It brings out flavor. If you've ever had, how many of you enjoy steak? Okay. I am like top on the list of people who enjoy steak thoroughly. If I take a steak and I age it well and I, it's a good cut, it's a nice ribeye. Oh, a little bit of fat marbled in there. It's exquisite. Going to be good. I go outside, I turn on my grill, I put it on the grill, and this time I'm not distracted and I nail it. Right timing, right flipping, everything's right, it's all good. I bring it back into my house and I wait, it's got to rest. Don't ever cut your steak right after you get off the grill. I'm just telling you, let it rest at least 10 minutes. Put it on my plate, take the knife, cut it open, take a bite. If I have forgot salt... I will be thoroughly disappointed. I'm just telling you that right now. You will be disappointed if there is not salt on your steak because salt and some pepper bring out some great flavor in that steak. And that's the sort of image that God is giving to us about what Christians do in the world around us. We bring a fullness of flavor. Not only is salt there for flavor, though, it also has another purpose, even in the time of Jesus. As Jesus was saying this, he knew that salt was also to preserve. You would salt things, and as you salted them, you could store them for longer because the salt, you know, going into those things would protect it. So there's this idea of preservation, which means... That for us as followers of Jesus, we are also a part of preservation. And how do we do that? Well, we do that by hungering and thirsting after righteousness. And if we hunger and thirst after righteousness, then we preserve things like truth. In this world of false news and statements that have spin on them and this way and that way, how important is truth? We need to stand for truth. In this world of injustice, and it's hard to even figure out what is just, for us to stand for justice and really be, be courageous in preserving justice in our world, especially for those that the scriptures talk about, justice for the poor, justice for the widowed, justice for the orphaned, justice for, justice for the naked and those in imprison, justice for those who are aliens within our gates. Those are places, friends, where scripture makes it clear that we are preservation among the world around us by being salt. And the problem is often 
That if we lose our saltiness, there's a warning here. What's the warning? What is the warning? You get trampled. How many of you want God to trample you? No one's going to put their hand up because, frankly, that sounds like a really bad Sunday afternoon. God trampling me doesn't sound good. Thus, me keeping the distinctives of my saltiness that he has given me through the gospel and the grace of Jesus Christ. And being willing to stand for peace. Being willing to to hunger and thirst after him. Being willing to be meek. Being willing to all those things in scripture. Because if I'm not and lose my saltiness, there is a warning and a caution. And friends, so often, I don't think we take that to heart. Now, I'm not here to scare you straight. But I am here to say, God has given you everything. He has given you in Jesus Christ grace, love, hope, a purpose, gifts, abilities, a future, all that stuff and way more. Why wouldn't you want to be salty for him? There's this new phrase, have you heard it lately? If someone's salty, they're a little like, uh, what, what, what am I looking for? They're a little surly. They're a little straightforward. I, I'm not looking for that kind of salty. I'm looking for a loving salty. means that when I walk into a room, that I, I spread that flavor around. If the room is a place of conflict, then I seek to spread peace. If the room is a place of some sort of of inappropriate talk, that I seek to bring it back to a place of righteousness. If it is a place where, where people are at odds with each other, that I seek to bring people together. That's saltiness. And frankly, I don't know about you, but in the world that we live in, that's living in the world but not of the world. Because the world often says, when people are in a room and they are in conflict, the thing you do is walk in and throw a can of gas on the fire. Let's be different. And as Jesus is beginning his ministry to his disciples, he's saying right from the beginning, be different. Be distinct. Be salty. And be light says this. You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp, put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Now, We just talked a minute ago about identity and behavior. Notice those two statements. You are the salt. You are the light. What are those statements? Behavior or identity? Identity statements. Jesus is saying to his disciples and he's saying to us, this is who you are. Live into the best of who you are. So be salt, because that's the best of who you are. Be light, because that is the best of who you are. Live into your identity. Don't live into those those behaviors which take you away, are, are, um, are counter to your identity. Live into the things that are most affirming of your identity. Be motivated by that righteousness. Now, you also notice there's this interesting image, right? It says this, neither do people light a lamp, 
put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand. Okay, so this image, there's nothing really up here to do that. It would be like if I had a light, um, if I had my phone, okay, I got a light on my phone, all right? And I want to ask you the question, how many of you can see my light? Who can see my light? Anyone? (laughs) How are you seeing my light? But if I go like this, how many of you can see my light? Right? Okay, obviously, clearly, simple. Like Elgris might get out of first grade. The only problem is, with our lives, friends, we're doing this, oftentimes. We're hiding it. Why? Because fear. We're hiding it because, frankly, we got bigger fish to fry, we think. We're hiding it because we don't know how people can respond. But see, that's what the call is. The call is not to hide, not to put it in a bowl or behind my butt. Put it instead up high. See, instead of being in the world, I'm not of it. I'm above it. I'm above the motivations. I'm above the type of discussions and the types of fights that go on. I'm above the type of of perspectives that people want to bring and up into Christ's perspective, Christ's mode of doing things, Christ's way of engaging in conflict and discussion. And frankly, when we get up here and our light gets up here because of what? Hungering, thirsting after righteousness our light becomes wider and bigger and greater. And we can certainly testify in our own lives to people who were that light to the world. In fact, we mourn the loss of one today. Don Nightum was that. How many times did that guy show light to the world around Redlands and its county because of things like Totally Kids? Things like supporting Redlands Christian School, supporting things like the River Church, supporting things like the Community Christian College. All these things that were called, were about showing light in a different way. And they took hard work and sometimes they took sacrifice and sometimes they failed and fell completely on their face. And he didn't do it perfectly. Believe me, I know that. But he shared light. And there was beauty there. 